All of your problems are a matter of who you worship. All of life is a matter of who you worship. And my guess is you don't think you're worshiping that much. Maybe Sunday mornings, right? But that's what Mark is going to challenge us with a little bit. To recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is the God of nature. People like to talk about Mother Nature. It's a bunch of nonsense. There's a God who made nature. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's terrifying. Mark's gospel is going to show us that. It's going to show us the terror of Jesus. It's going to show us the authority of Jesus. The power by which he can do whatever he wants to do. And sometimes it doesn't make any sense. He does it anyway. Because he does what he wants to do. He has the authority. He has the power. And then what do you do when the guy who's your king, who's your God, who has the power and authority, does something and it looks like madness? Mark's going to show us a Jesus who's a little, a little different. A little off his rocker. It's not quite the see Jesus, love, love Jesus, love version that a lot of Sunday schools teach. He's, well... He's violent even at times, going to get to that in a moment. But the key about the madness of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is for you to recognize he's not mad at all. You are. But he has the clarity of the word that is eternal that will shine light upon your madness and and reveal again. Uh, what his path is for you. He has authority. He's a little mad. He's violent. I just mentioned that. Jesus doesn't take prisoners in Mark's gospel. He doesn't respect persons either. And so by violence, I mean a little bit. He's just mean. Which to Americans, that's violence, right? Like you can sue people for being mean to you. Jesus is mean. He's also directly violent. You can think of the cleansing of the temple. But you can also think about his warfare against the demons, which is going to come out strongly in Mark's gospel as he confronts those things which man fears in order to put our fear back where it should be, which is rightly under the love and trust of God, our creator. And that's what Jesus is going to do. It's what the spirit of Mark is going to show us. I want you to think about this journey through the gospel of Mark as the heavenly kingdom you didn't expect. Mark sits amongst four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They each have a theme. Everyone loves all of them, except for Mark, it seems. Someone's always loving John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's beautiful. It's like a poem. The whole thing is a poem. Or you got Matthew's Gospel, quoting Old Testament left and right, proving to the Jews that Jesus is their Savior, completely targeting like every question or criticism that the early church could have had to face, Matthew targets it and answers it. It's a marvelous piece and often is called the primary gospel as a result of that. Probably, possibly because it came first. Then you have Luke, who researches all diligently and gives us the closest thing to a history that anybody in the New Testament gives of Jesus' life. He's mentioned in Quirinius, governor of Syria, placing the whole thing right in his context. He's talking to Mary, finding out what she sang when she got pregnant. All of this kind of stuff Luke gives us. It's amazing. So after those three then, now you got Mark. What can you, what can you right now tell me about Mark that's different from any of what I just said? My guess is very little. 
Does he kind of hide? He's like, the, he's like the kid brother, you know, hiding in the back. But the thing is, when he steps out, he ain't messing around. You have Jesus, the king of authority, who seems a little crazy, but he ain't. He's here to drive out demons. He's going to end the world. He's going to forgive you into faithfulness by changing your mind, by preaching his word to you in a way that you just can't ignore, right? The shepherd's voice and all this. So we're going to be finding these things in the Gospel of Mark, I hope, those themes I just mentioned throughout our journey. I also want to just take a brief moment and uh, address the reality that our sermons here at St. Paul Lutheran Church are our primary Bible study. I want to make that really clear. This is not accidental. This was a decision the elders allowed me to have us make following the shutdown in 2020 when we shut down further than perhaps we should have, but not all the way, thank Jesus. Coming out of that, putting things back in place, not having had Bible study for a year plus, I said, what if every member at St. Paul Lutheran Church came to Bible study? What would happen if after 10 years, every single member came to Bible study? Now, of course, I didn't mean let's like try to trick them all to go into Bible study after church. I said, what if I don't give you a choice? What if I make you sit here? I don't know if you remember, those of you who were here first for this 45-minute deal that we do in the late service, but there was some complaining initially. Um, Some of my favorite comments, though, have been people who are like, oh, I don't don't get bored anymore during your sermon, Pastor. 45 minutes ain't so bad. Oh, anymore. Ah, Thank you. Um, But so this is Bible study. That's why there's note cards in the pew. That's why there's pens in the pew. That's why there's Bibles in the pew. The, the, The job we have as a people right now in Rockford is become biblically knowledgeable people so that we can stand on our faith against the winds of this age, which are increasingly threatening, not just who we are, but everything we believe. And it's not just a matter of they're going to hold a gun to your head and say, stop believing in marriage. It's a matter of how over time, the wave of their message is just so loud that it moves everybody eventually, generation by generation. And I want St. Paul to be the kind of a place where we put down our foot and we say no more, no farther. We have a message that's going to outlast this mess. Let's know what that says. Yeah. Hence, here we go. Gospel of Mark, start to finish. Why start in the middle? Bad reason, really. Good reason. I don't know. You, you decide. It's, it's Transfiguration Sunday. I'm a, I'm a hymnal-using pastor. I love the liturgy. I'm not going to mess up Transfiguration. Well, So what do we do? Preach Mark chapter 1 for Transfiguration? Could have done. Could have pushed off another week. Could have done. But we're just starting in the middle. But, but then I was forced with that question to ask about the middle of the book of Mark. Because many times in the Bible, especially to a Hebrew mind, the middle is kind of like the end times two. Like in our storytelling, in the way we write these days, the end is everything. The end is the completion. In Mark's gospel, we'll see when we get there in chapter 16, we actually got a problem. It's got two endings. We don't even know which one's which. And they're both quite, quite different from each other, although it's ultimately the same message. But that's not even the main thing in Mark. The main thing is the middle. You don't get to see the resurrected Jesus in Mark if The longer ending is inauthentic. We'll touch on that when we get there. But follow me with this. You do get to see him transfigured. 
You see him transfigured. So when the women run away afraid because the angel said he's risen, after the disciples didn't understand what it meant, this rising from the dead thing, you as the reader of the book are supposed to be like, well, I know what it means and run back to the transfiguration. He's God. That's what it means. And then to wonder, why are the disciples and the women running away afraid? What's wrong with them? That's, a, that's an important question to ask. Yeah, what's wrong with, what's wrong with me? Why am I so afraid of stepping out in faith? And, and things, things like that. Okay, so start in the middle for two reasons. One, transfiguration. Two, it is the middle of the book and the meat is there. And the text we're going to look at, chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, has two stories. They're going to pair together like, like two halves of an atom at the middle of an element or something like that. They're, 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 they're bookends to each other as the nugget and as the core. Yeah? And one's a story about heaven's power, and one's a story about hell's power. And we're going to get to that second bit in a moment. But before we do that, I want to give you all here at this service special deal, a little bit of even more context, what's going on around our text. So if you find your way to page 844 in your pew Bible, or your own Bible, Mark chapter 9, we are going to start with verse 1, but scoot back a little bit till you find verse 27 of chapter 8. It'll be under a heading like Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. All right, so according to most scholars, Mark 8, 27 is the beginning of the second half of Mark. Okay, so the, the whole book goes up to 826 with one story. And then at verse 27, there's another story that lands right on top of that one story. Same themes, same Jesus. It's always toward the cross, but the cross is going to get louder and louder and louder as we go from Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus telling him that means he's going to die. Cross, there it is, it showed up. Peter saying, that's wrong. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus saying, I'm fighting Satan now and my best friend. What's going on with all of this, right? And then from there, talking about losing your life and carrying your own cross as what he has come to do. And that'll lead us right into the going up the mountain for the transfiguration. But there, there is one little bit. Chapter 9, verse 1. Right As he's talking about carrying your cross, as he's talking about what it means that he's going to suffer and die for you, he says, verse 9, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That is the conclusion again of the first time he tells about his death and resurrection and his apostles don't believe it. He says, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God, even though you don't get it right now. That point is where then our text is going to pick up that we normally hear about the transfiguration. I want you to see that chapter 9, verse 1 is talking about the transfiguration. So he's got these guys. He says he's the suffering servant. He says he's going to die. They don't understand it. He says, just hang on. It, it won't be very long. You're going to see all the glory of God revealed. And then verse Two, six days later, it's going to happen. Okay, Some of them who were standing there six days before, Peter, James, and John, they're going to be with them on a mountain, and they're going to see the glory of the kingdom of God completely revealed. We don't have to wait for this little bit in 9-1 to be fulfilled. It's not about the end of the world. It's about Jesus going up the mountain. Now, one last thing before we get into the text proper. 
And that is, so out of 8, 27 to 38, the last part of chapter 8 that really, if the scholars did it right, they'd make it the start of chapter 9, the second half of the book. Before our text starts that we're going to look at right now, there's three questions that got answered. I just gave you that, but I'm going to do it again. Okay? There's three questions. One question is, who is Jesus? The answer is, he is the Christ. That's who Jesus is, the King of Israel, the Son of the living God. Question number two, what's he here to do? The answer is to die. He's here to die. That's what he's here to do. Preach the word, of course. Heal diseases, yes. Love people, yes. But really, die. That's what he's here to do. Question number three is, what does that mean for you now? And the answer from, again, chapter 8, 27 to 38 is, it means pick up your cross. It means pick up your cross. What does that mean? Uh, it means get used to suffering. Stop trying to make a life where you escape from it. Stop believing in all the mythologies about how if you do this, then it will all be better. Instead, take some ownership of what you are, both good and bad. But, but own the bad, own the weakness, own the frailty, own the brokenness, own the despair. Own, own whatever it is you need to own to recognize it is God's wrath against you for being a child of Adam. I don't mean that you did the wrong thing last Thursday afternoon, so now you're being punished. I mean that because you live on this planet, born of Adam with the rest of us, you're being punished. And everything you do that's kind of stupid and evil, it does blow back on you. But it's, even if you live like this amazingly upright life, you still might find yourself being punished. That's, that's indeed the lesson of Job. You can't be good enough to avoid taking up your cross. Jesus took up his cross. He took up your cross. So what should you do about that? Take up your own. Own your suffering as a major portion of your discipleship in Jesus. What, what's that mean, Pastor? How do I own my suffering? Again, give us some time and just stop trying to run away from it in your head. Tell yourself. Ask Jesus, can I own my suffering? Right? Can I take up my cross? Can you show me how to take up my cross and follow you without being a legalist and a judgmental, pushy person? Show me how to carry my cross in such a way that it brings about good for the world the way you, Jesus, carried the cross and brought about good for the world. That, that's, where we're, that's where we are now, okay, in the story. As he says to them, you're going to see the kingdom. And as six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John, goes up a high mountain. And he was, it's almost like it just goes right past it. He was transfigured before them. There it is. It just happened. Boom. You know, hello. It, it doesn't mention his face shining here the way it does in Matthew. Uh, but it does mention that his clothes become radiant. They shine, right? Intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. You know, he, he didn't have the luxury of saying as if you put a thousand candle, candle power flashlight, you know, in front of it. He didn't have that. He had just white and the color to work with. It's so bright, he said. It's, it's like bleach had just taken everything away. But it's a heavenly bleach again. This is shining here. And I mentioned this before in the service. I'm not going to dwell on this a lot, but this is Jesus showing you that he's God. So if you ever run into that person who's like, Jesus never said he was God. Like in your head, not out loud, in your head say, shut up. You are talking to yourself a little bit, so you do. Uh -huh. 
And then you recognize that this person has no idea what they're talking about, that the Godhood of Jesus is evident for anyone who wants to see it. And if you need to remind yourself why, remember, he's shone like a star on a mountain. No one else can do this. Even angels don't really do this. Well, here is one who is unlike any other. Who is this man? That's, that's the question Mark's going to want us to ask, actually, a lot. Who is this man? Uh, no one on earth completes it. Verse 4. Then there shows up like the two most important guys in the Old Testament. Uh, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. <laughs> Elijah's pretty pretty big deal. The entire intertestamental eschatology, that is, uh, their study of what they believed about the end of the world, which coincides with ours, but ours is unique because of the resurrection. But their study of the end of the world was all about Elijah. Because of an Old Testament prophet who said that before the suffering servant, the son of David, would come to be king from Jerusalem, that Elijah would return. And between the rebuilding of Jerusalem under Nehemiah and Ezra and the coming of Jesus, you know, four or five hundred years, there was a lot of discussion about what that meant. Who is this Elijah? Where is he? Well, I mean, again, here he is with Moses. Oh, oh, just Moses, you say. Just the absolute most important guy. The guy who wrote Torah, right? They don't even call it Torah sometimes. They just call it Moses. Have you read Moses, right? Here are these two most important Old Testament figures, and they are submitting themselves to Jesus. They are already surrendered, having given their lives to Jesus, uh, both spiritually but physically, too. Taken up in fire. And then uh, however Moses died and was buried, Michael or, or what have you. But they're talking with him. We know from Luke, they're talking about his death. Peter, a little confused, says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. But that's good. But then he wants to make three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. I think the idea here is, by and large, he's expecting crowds. Right? I mean, it's not just Jesus here who's been feeding large crowds. Now we got Moses and Elijah. They both came back. The end of the world must be very close at hand. Let's set up camp right here on this mountain and conquer the world. That's what they're expecting. And so it kind of makes sense, but it also does tell us, you know, he was terrified. He didn't know what to say. He just kind of let his mouth run. And it, this isn't really the point of the text, but it's such valuable wisdom that I, I want to share it with you. Okay. You just got to know that when your fear gets the better of you, it makes you stupid. So if you want to be a disciplined Christian who's able to use your tongue for good in the world, one of the key things you've got to do is first learn to hold it a little bit and then learn to calm yourself so you can speak. Uh, why can you not speak when you're afraid? It's, it's a wonderful little survival mechanism called fight or flight response. What happens is, uh, what should we pick? You tell me, we got a tiger, we got a vampire, and we got a salesman. What should we pick? No one says anything. I'll take tiger then. Okay, we got a tiger. You see the tiger? Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I'm going to get ready to run. Did I have to think that? Well, I might think it, but I've already started getting ready. How does this happen? My body breathes. <gasps> fills my lungs with oxygen that it shoves into the blood. The blood is pumping. My heart speeds up and shoves blood into the extremities of my limbs. My muscles are vigorous and ready to run. The trick is, all that blood was previously being used for other bodily functions like thinking. All that blood left your brain and went down to your calves. And so now as you're about to run from the tiger and you have to decide which way to go, you don't have 100% capacity with you right now. Which is why if you've got a plan, 
when you're afraid tends to work better, by the way. Now, all of this is just some good wisdom here. As Christians, we live in a world that's always trying to make us afraid. You turn on the news, what are they going to do? They're going to try to make you afraid. Okay, what's that going to do to your thinking? It's going to dilute your thinking. So, so learn the lesson here. Yeah? Calm yourself in order to see clearly, unlike Peter at this moment, although again, not the real point of the text, just some wisdom. All right. He didn't know what to say. They were terrified and a cloud overshadowed them. I mean, they had a reason to be terrified. Now, Sinai is reenacting itself. The glory of God is appearing out of nowhere. And then a voice comes out of the cloud. If you believe that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, which I do believe, then the Father doesn't talk very often. A lot of people, I think, they read like Genesis 1. It says God was walking with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. Think, oh, that's the Father. I don't think that. I think that's Jesus. He's not a man yet, so you wouldn't have called him Jesus, but he's the eternal begotten Son of God, or as uh, the New Testament calls him, the only mediator between God and man. He always has been, he always will be. That's what the Son is. He proceeds from the Father. He's begotten to be the face of God. So, with that said then, That means the burning bush is Jesus. That means the pillar of fire and cloud is Jesus. And once you start doing that, start looking for where the Father speaks. You don't have a lot. You got Jesus' baptism. You got right here. You got maybe a few places in the Psalter where he's speaking directly to Jesus about how Jesus is going to be made Christ. Limited. Why do I say all that? I say that to emphasize that means this is really important. If God the Father is going to talk like He is not kidding. He's bringing it out. Don't miss it. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We've already established Jesus is the Christ. We've established he's here to die. We've established you should take up your cross. But now, again, Peter, that means listen to him. Which practically goes back to what we just heard from the epistle a few moments ago from Peter. Pay attention to the scriptures as to a lamp shining in the dark places, right? Know the words of Jesus. Do you remember how we did, what was it? Was it the Sermon on the Mount that we did like last spring? I think we went through the whole Sermon on the Mount maybe during Lent. We read the whole thing out loud. Maybe it was all the sermons in Matthew. I can't remember. What I remember is this though. I remember someone coming up to me afterwards. It was all the red in Matthew, the big sermons. We looked at each one, there's five. Someone came up to me and said, I had no idea Jesus said all those things. You know what? Oh, really? I mean, it's been in the Bible this whole time. You never knew. And what she was kind of getting at was also like a lot of the things he said she knew. But she didn't know he said it. You know? Uh, judge not, lest you be judged. That kind, of, that kind of thing, actually. Right? So listen to him. My point here is, you know, know the scriptures. And by all means, understand that Jesus is your master. So when he talks, those words have a different capacity than other people's words. They're in red letters for a reason. Uh, Verse 8, suddenly looking around, they saw no one but Jesus only. Uh, A nice little moment of gospel right there. All the fear and the cloud and the power, it goes away. And then there is just Jesus the man, not shining anymore. Same guy who just told you he was here to die. As they're coming down from the mountain, he starts it all over again. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So first half of verse 10, they did the right thing. They listened to him. They kept the matter to themselves. 
But not really. They, they kept it among themselves and they talked about how it didn't make any sense. What does this rising from the dead mean? They keep asking. Which is interesting given that the Jewish people at this time believed in a resurrection of all people from the dead on the last day. Nobody questioned that. But it doesn't seem to jive with whatever Jesus is telling them about his own death and resurrection, which mysteriously is like the last day coming a little bit early. So they do understand that the end of the world is at hand, though, which is why the next question shifts to Elijah, right? They ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And the easy answer is, is because I believe the prophet Malachi says that's what's going to happen. He could have just answered it like that. Uh, but the answer we have here from Jesus is a little more complex. So first, he agrees, right? Elijah does come first to restore all things. Second, he talks about not Elijah, but the Son of Man suffering. Same thing we've just been talking about. Same thing they don't understand at all. He brings the topic back to the same point. Son of man's going to die. What about Elijah? Son of man's going to die. <laughs> no, he keeps coming back to it. Right? Verse uh, 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 13. So also, it says, but I tell you. But you hear it in your head. So also I tell you, Elijah has come. Right? It's true Elijah will come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. So if the Christ is going to come and be killed, what do you think is going to happen to the messenger who's not worthy to untie his sandals? Think he gets out of it? No, he doesn't. He's the forerunner. He's a little Christ. He's a Christian. And part of his Christian walk is to pick up his cross and have his head chopped off in order that we might know that the powers that be have rejected God's kingdom entirely, even as they then crown him with thorns. Yeah. All of that kind of here in his answer to their question. I mean, we, could, we could probably spend 40 minutes just on those three verses. Uh, what I want you to see is how Jesus turns the question about Elijah back into a question about himself and his cross. Uh, as they're coming down from him showing them, he's got the power to make the kingdom of God do whatever he wants it to do. That's our first story in the section we're looking at, the story of heaven, uh, the story of light. Even though it's interacting with the confusion and darkness of man, the light wins. Yeah. Light's going to win the next story too, but only after emphasizing the power of hell that's going to be here. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll take it one verse at a time, maybe two, depending on how the story goes. We're in verse 14 of chapter 9, page 844. And when they, Peter, James, John, Jesus, came to the disciples, nine other apostles all with authority to preach, teach, heal diseases, cast out demons, that kind of thing. When they came to them, bottom of the mountain, down the plain, they saw a great crowd around them. Oh, I think 100 people, 200, 300 people, maybe more. And scribes arguing with them. So now you got nine apostles, big crowd, scribes from Jerusalem, all in a debate. They're all shouting, talking about something. Huh? And verse 15, immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed. 
important little word there in Mark. They, they, it's connected to fear again. They're, they're surprised, they're shocked, they're marveling, and they ran up to him and greeted him, right? They want, to, want him to solve the debate that they're having, right? among other things. There's maybe more going on too. Verse 16, he asked them though, you know, what are you arguing about with them? Now, I, I kind of like to slow down here a little bit. It's not just what are you arguing about, you know, uh, Bartholomew and, and, you know, Judas, not Iscariot, right? Uh, wh- what are you arguing about? It's, it's kind of, why are you talking to the scribes? What are you doing? Arguing with them. What, what is it you're arguing with them about? Someone else. They don't answer. Verse 17, someone from the crowd says, he's the father of this kid, teacher, that's rabbi again, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Now, I mean, golly, if you know, take yourself out of uh, the church service for a second and maybe out of the movie that you're watching a little bit and, and Ask as a parent, if you can imagine it. Some of you don't have kids, you have to try to imagine your own kid. And watching your own kid shaking and foaming on the ground and maybe casting himself into the fire sometimes, you got to grab him and pull him out. And this is not merely epilepsy, as you know, the critical scholars always want to make these things just merely kind of human diseases. I'm not saying there's no human diseases, but I'm saying this is an unclean spirit. This is a demon. And then some. Is a kind of a superpower demon, as we're going to see in a moment. But now notice again, there is Jesus, God on the mountain, comes down. What's he find? Darkness. There's a conflict here. There's a conflict. There's a fight about to take place. Um, so, and this fight is with this demon that, don't miss, he asked the disciples to cast the demon out. They're not able. These disciples have been given direct instructions and power to cast out demons. So this should make you as a reader be like, like, why does Superman have no powers right now? What's up with that? There's no kryptonite. What's going on? Yeah. What is going on? But now here's what I love. The madness of Jesus. These are my favorite moments. So this dad runs out of this crowd where the apostles are debating the scribes and says, can you heal my boy? He keeps throwing himself on the ground and making himself spit and foam. And Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation. How long? Am I to be with you? Wow, Jesus. Could you, could you be more gentle, perhaps? Now, I maybe am overemphasizing it for the point. But the point is, it's kind of like, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. Why, why are you upset? <laughs> What's just going on here? Yeah. And why is he upset? Uh, well, because he's tired of sin. He's sick of it. He's weary of putting up with us in our evil. It doesn't mean he doesn't want you in the redeemed good he's going to bring. He means he wants to get to that point. He's actually kind of looking forward to it. He's looking forward to the cross so he can get his having to feel the sin over with. And where does he feel the sin specifically here? Well, first he has to hear about this poor child. That bothers him. He's got the father saying, I just want someone to fix it. Doesn't mean he trusts in Jesus. And you got his own apostles unable to do the very thing he's told them they have power to do because they're forgetting something, which is going to be the point of the story a little bit here uh, in a moment. Uh, so, but notice, again, oh, faithless generation, 
Uh, it's not, hey, how can we win more souls, right? There's just something completely on the other side of who Jesus is here that we don't want to lose in verses like this. It doesn't mean he doesn't love the man, but it does mean that he hates something we need to learn how to hate. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Uh, Verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy. And he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Again, what a terrifying, terrifying experience that had to be. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? So Jesus' curiosity has peaked a little bit here. And he says, from childhood. There's a long-standing possession, oppression, I don't know. Um, but more, verse 22, it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, again, uh, Jesus, what he says next, you, you can read it more than one way. So I'm going to give you the way that I really like it, right? Hey, Jesus, if you can do anything, would you have compassion on my son? If you can, what do you mean, if I can? All things are possible to whom the one who believes. So see how the father's request isn't a request of faith? Can you see that? In Jesus' response, and the way he says it isn't, Jesus, I know you can, please. Hey, I got people under authority. I have people under authority from me. I tell them, go, they do what they do. You can do this to him, please do it. There's a guy who does that. He says, don't even come under my roof. Just say the word, it'll be done. Here he goes, if, if, if you can do anything for me, would you? And Jesus wants you to know he can. <laughs> There's no if, There's no if. He can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. Does that mean you can, you know, uh, make a house out of roses and tulips and live on cotton candy? No, no, no. What it means is that God has planned for you in your spiritual walk with him immeasurably more than all that you have ever asked or imagined out of this world. And this includes an eternal life on a new heavens and a new earth. With all evil purged away, your own metal refined like gold in the fire to be innocent, righteous, and blessed forever and not alone with all the rest of us. It's a pretty incredible reality that Jesus has come to give us as his healing of us. And there's no if he can about it. There's only it's all possible. It's all coming. Would you start again listening? listening. The guy gets it. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Jesus says, all things are possible to you who believes. I I believe. I believe. I do. I really do. Deep down, I want to. But can you, can you help my unbelief? Nice moment here. He sees that he does trust. He sees that he wants to trust. He knows he doesn't trust. He asks for trust. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And Jesus notices the crowds all come and running together. 
So he rebukes the unclean spirit. Yeah? Not like the archangel Michael who argued over the body by calling on God and said he does it directly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. So, I mean, the story itself is, again, phenomenal. So, the boy, Jesus comes down. The father runs out. Uh, the father says, your disciples can't do it. Can you heal him? Jesus says, why am I putting up with you? The father says, please do it anyway. The boy falls on the ground, starts rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus is like, how long has this been going on? They're watching this all go on at this point, right? A guy says, from childhood, Jesus says, well, if you believe, you know, you can. He says, I believe, I believe, help me. Finally, okay, I rebuke the unclean spirit, and it, it does more violence to the poor kid. It's even a worse scenario. The whole crowd's in utter awe about this, so that when it's done, ah, he's lying there on the ground. They think he's dead. But then here's again Jesus. It's just like the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peak, 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 scare, 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 and then just Jesus. And here comes Jesus on the other side of this boy convulsing and dying, and what? He, he picks him up. I did this. He's fine. Here you go. Gives him back to his father. Now, verse 28 and 29 kind of drive home the point here a little bit. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, very important question, why could we not cast it out? You know, if, if you have a key to a lock, and it works every time you put it in that lock. And then one day you come to that lock and it doesn't go in. You got to go, what's up with that? They've, they've got the power to cast out demons. Jesus, why did this one not come out? His answer is very important. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. All right. Now we got seven minutes here. Buckle in. We're going to use it. Um, to deal with Mark. More, I would suggest, than any other gospel, you've got to deal with demons. The trick mm, with demons, yeah, is that they're tricky. Uh, the thing about demons from the Bible is God doesn't really want you to know much about them. Which, if you think about that, is kind of cool, actually. He's like, there are these horrible, evil beasts that want to destroy you, but I'm not going to let you see or know much about them. Don't worry about it. And that's kind of what we get, all right? But we get these other glimmers. There definitely is a history of exorcism in the church, which we'll, we'll maybe touch on here or there. But my goal as we hit these texts where the demons are present in Mark is just to emphasize first how little you believe any of it when you walk out the door. Not because you're choosing to not believe in demons, you just don't think there are any. Not in your practical daily life. Not while you're going down to the stoplight. You're like, I better slow down. There might be a demon there. You don't have it in your worldview to consider that there are angels in the room all the time when you're there. Now, you do know this, you do believe this, but I want you to wrestle with is how it isn't something that is like the ground of how you act or how you operate. And I think it should be. I think that our awareness that there is a war between light and darkness going on around us at all times is something that can be very stabilizing 
as an emotional factor in your day-to-day life, honestly, your awareness that God is for you and not against you is going to bring a peace of conscience to you. So in that then, we're going to go at the demonology as best we can without getting too sidetracked by it. But now the one verse, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We learn a couple things here. There's kinds of demons. There's kinds. Yeah? And some kinds are stronger than others, it would seem. Yeah? I, I don't know why, except for that. Some kinds can only be driven out by prayer. And Jesus driving them out. But that even if you got power over most demons, whatever this was that he was dealing with is of a different level. Now, now really, look what happened. You're telling me that if I'm an apostle, I can cast out most demons. But if I'm a Christian armed with prayer, I can pray out all demons. Which gift do you think is more useful? Prayer. Right? Prayer. That's the point here. Why can we not cast it out? Because you thought you were doing it. That's <laughs> why. Yeah. You want evil to change? Stop trying to fix it. Start asking Jesus to fix it. You'll find it happens. It won't be everything you want. He won't make you the king of your own little God world. That's for sure. But what he will do is expand the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. He will absolutely do that. Yeah. And in this regard, then, if you come face to face with darkness, with oppression, with any manner of spiritual attack, well, then you have in the prayers to Jesus, which are recorded in your Psalter, an entire tool book for any kind of threat or uh, situation that you run into. Yeah. Goals, of course, with Sons of Solomon, I encourage you to do that discipline as men, especially in the congregation, is to get those prayers into your blood. Uh, But the point here again is that that life of prayer is the taking up of the cross to follow Christ. To recognize that there are demons out there you're not going to be able to fight, but your God has already fought them for you. It's to know that the devil is your enemy, ruling the world as the prince of darkness, moving all nations and powers, including wicked men, toward a day of great destruction, and he hopes to bring you along with him by stealing your faith in the process. And that this is not going to happen Because Jesus Christ has called you out of darkness and into his light. Jesus Christ has not abandoned you. Even though it bothers him to put up with your unbelief and your lukewarmness and all this. How long must I put up with you? He knew all of that before he came. And he came anyway. He came anyway. He chose you. Now, after this. Chapter 9, verse 30 through 50. We will look at that specifically later, but so you kind of get the big swath of the picture. The next thing that happens is that Jesus will predict his death again. And then there'll be sort of a sermon mixed in with a couple of stories that are all about sin, hellfire, and selfishness. And, And we'll come back to those again when we get there. But here then at the heart of the book, between the confession of Christ, cross prediction, and a cross prediction, and a foretelling of hell, you have heaven and hell in a fight at the base of a mountain where God is shown up in all of his glory and where the demon cannot withstand well, the madness, 
the violence, uh, the authority of the Son of God, who's here to, again, to save all of us in that young boy who represents you and your sin, yeah. you and your death. All right. I think that's where we're going to end it. I'd like to have a snappy conclusion, but I don't. Next week, chapter one, in the name of Jesus.